We're continuing our study through the book of 1 Samuel. We have, we have seen already in our study in the first 15 chapters of 1 Samuel, we've, we've seen a lot, haven't we? We've seen the crisis in God's people. We've seen the crisis in Israel. Um, we've seen that. We've seen the, the, the result of the, or the reason for that crisis is the, is the failure of some of the leadership. Some of the failure of the leadership. We, we saw that, that Eli's sons were, were wicked. That Eli himself had, was not doing what he needed to do. We, we saw what happened because of that. We saw the people, the people sort of cry out that they wanted a God like all, excuse me, they wanted a king like all of the other nations around them had. In the process, of course, displacing God is placing Yahweh from his place as their king. We saw the anointing of Saul, and we have seen Saul fail. Last week, we saw that failure of Saul. We saw that God, just as, as Saul ripped and tore away an aspect of Samuel's cloak, we've seen God tear away the kingdom from Saul. So that's where we find ourselves here in the beginning of chapter 16. We're going to meet David today. For the first time, we're, we're meeting David. First Samuel really is, is all about the rise of David. First Samuel ends with, with David finally, finally being seen and understood and accepted as king. Second Samuel is all about David's kingship. But but first Samuel, you know, we're 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 about halfway halfway through, maybe a little bit more than halfway through, and we're just now meeting David. I don't know if any of you um, ever uh, particularly back in the 90s. I don't know what's going on now, but, but back in the 90s when I was, when I was in high school, uh, many, many, many of my friends were super into professional wrestling. This was the, this was the, the, the this was NWO, right? And, and, and all of that, all of that. It was the, the, you had Stone Cold Steve Austin and you had The Rock and all of these guys, right? If any of you have ever watched professional wrestling, you know that everybody's got entrance music, right? And I think it sort of started with professional wrestling, and now it's, now it's gone across. If you go to a ball game, somebody walks out onto the field to, you know, to, to the batter's box, or from the batter's box to home plate, they're playing, they're playing hype music for them, right? They've, they've, all got, they've all got intro music now. We, we, were, we were treated to a, a special moment of there is nothing more 2023 than this when when we saw the American female soccer player Megan Rapoport holding a bluetooth speaker playing her own entrance music as she walked down the tunnel uh, getting off of the bus because she thinks you know anything about Megan Rapoport she thinks very highly of herself So David is coming. 
But what we're going to see today is that there is no entrance music for David. There's no hyping David up. And there is certainly no David carrying his own Bluetooth speaker. We're in 1 Samuel. We're in chapter 16. Will you stand with me as we read God's word together? The Lord said to Samuel, How long are you going to mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have selected a king from his sons. Samuel asked, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord answered, take a young cow with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will let you know what you are to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate to you. Samuel did what the Lord directed and went to Bethlehem. When the elders of the town met him, they trembled and asked, Do you come in peace? In peace, he replied. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and said, Certainly the Lord's anointed one is here before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his stature, because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Jesse called Abinab and presented him to Samuel. The Lord hasn't chosen this one either, Samuel said. Then Jesse presented Shammah, and Samuel said, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. And Jesse presented seven of his sons to him. Samuel told Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Samuel asked him, Are these all the sons that you have? There is still the youngest, he answered. But right now he's tending the sheep. Samuel told Jesse, send for him. We will not sit down to eat until he gets here. So Jesse sent for him. He had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. Then the Lord said, anoint him, for he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. Then Samuel set out and went to Ramah. This is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly God, as we come before you this morning, we just remember who you are. We remember who we are. We remember the importance and the centrality of your word and your relationship with us. And so God, as we open your word this morning, to study it and to learn from it. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. May be seated. So this is is how we meet David. It's, It's not a very flashy meeting, is it? If you remember how we met Saul, it's not terribly dissimilar from how we met Saul. You know, we... We, we meet Saul, and, and Saul at first seems kind of like David is here. He's, he's out, he's not there, he's hesitant, he's, not, he's reluctant to be there. But as we will see, as we learn and see more about David, what God says there in verse 7 is true. That outward appearances can be deceiving, but it is what's in the heart that is what God sees. And so as we, as we start here, God speaks to Samuel, 
God speaks to Samuel, and it's clear that Samuel is still upset. He's depressed about the whole situation with Saul. He's, he's, he's upset about what has happened. He's upset about what has, Saul has done. And so what does God do? Does God come to him and say, I understand that you are upset, and so I am going to let you sit here and wallow in your upsetness until you feel better? No, God comes to him and he says, hey, look, not your fault. You didn't do this, and I got work for you to do. So let's go take a trip. Samuel's response, of course, is one sort of like, I do you really want me to do this? Because if Saul finds out about it, I'm a dead man. So God gives him this cover story. You know, it's interesting, when he, when he comes in to the, to the city, when he comes into Bethlehem, the text tells us that the, the leaders of the city sort of meet him, and they want to know why is he there. Perhaps they, they've heard about what happened in the previous chapter where, where Samuel bringing God's judgment hacked Agog to pieces. So they want to know, like, are you here, are you here in peace, or are you here to bring judgment? Are you here to give us a good word, or are you here to hack us to pieces? He says, no, no. No, I come to bring peace. I come to bring peace. And then there's this, this moment where the sons of the people of the city are coming, and the sons of Jesse begin to parade in front of Samuel. And the first is, is the eldest, Eliab, and, and it's clear here that when Samuel sees him, he, he sees a young man and says, this has got to be the guy. He looks like a king. He's, he's good looking, he's tall, he's strong. But what we're told real quick, right, is that God's not impressed. That these these traits that Samuel is seeing when he looks at him, God doesn't even register them. God does not look down from heaven and say, you've been working out? Or, that's a great haircut. Or, one more wonderful thing to add to your resume. See, these are all things that we get caught up in, right? All things that we think are the most important things, and yet God does not care because his standards are different from what most of us value because God looks at the heart. You know, brothers and sisters, in one sense, this is good news, right? In, in one sense, it's, it's good news because how many of us have tried to measure up to the impossible standards of the world and fallen short? E either y'all are a lot better than I am or you're asleep this morning. But, but how many of us succeed in that? None of us, right? I mean, the, the standards of the world are, are impossible. And so we put all of the stress on ourselves. We put all of the stress to have success 
as the world measures success. And increasingly, not only are we unable to do that, increasingly the way the world measures success is in direct contradiction to the way God measures success. How many times, how many times have we been told, how many times have we been told that, that we need to, to not let women have kids so that they can be successful? Right? Well, well put off, put off having kids until you get your career settled. Put off getting married until you're settled. Put off, put off doing all of these things, which, by the way, God calls us to, and, until you've measured some sort of success by the way the world measures it. There's, there's a stress. Have a, have a successful career, a conflict-free family, all of these things, and it doesn't happen because we live in a fallen and broken world. And so, to hear that God does not particularly care about our earthly successes might be, and probably is, refreshing. The problem is, if we really consider what it means when it says that God considers our heart, it also can be a bit problematic. Now, this is one that I'm not going to ask you to put your hand up for. But if we were really honest with ourselves, how many of us could raise our hand and say that we have the kind of heart that God desires? If we were really honest with ourselves, how many of us have a heart that is totally formed in the image and likeness of God. So here's what we're confronted with. Our outward appearance, what we show to the world, may not be top-notch. But if we are honest with ourselves, the condition of our heart is normally worse. We can spend hours caring for our bodies, decaying as they may be, or, or working on the next little slot to put on our, our resume or our CV. But the overwhelming majority of us, forget about the rest of the world, spend a little time thinking about the quality of our own hearts. See, we're more concerned about the approval of others than the approval of God. Too many of us worship not at the altar of God, but at the altar of respectability and success. But what we're told right here in verse 7 is that the Lord sees the heart. That can be challenging news for us. Maybe you've never heard that before. I, I hope I am fairly certain that I have preached at least once to every single person in this room. So I hope at some point you have heard this before from me. But maybe it's the first time you're actually hearing it, and it can hit you like a brick wall, can it? But the surprising thing here is not that it can surprise us. The surprising thing in this story is that it surprises Samuel. I mean, 
What has Samuel just been through? He has just been through this whole ordeal with Saul where they looked at the outside, chose a king on what was on the outside like all of the other nations had, and he ended up being a total and complete failure. I mean, Samuel is a prophet. He's supposed to be attuned to seeing the world the way that God sees the world. And yet, what we see here is he's about to make the exact same mistake again. And there's a hope here for me, and I hope for you. And the hope is this, knowing that we should look at the heart, knowing that we should be primarily concerned about our heart, knowing that we should be primarily concerned about the heart of others is so counterintuitive. It runs so against our fallen and sinful human nature that even Samuel has to be reminded of it. Even the prophet of God has to have God come up and gib slap him upside the back of the head and say, no, stop it. Bad Samuel, no cookie. I'm not looking at the outside. I'm looking at the heart. You know, we're not given any reasons as to why these sons of Jesse are rejected. We're not given any reason. You know, outwardly, they, they seem qualified, but, but God weighs their hearts and he finds it lacking. This is kind of like the Old Testament version of Cinderella, right? Samuel has come along with the glass slipper of the kingship, and he keeps trying to put it on the, the foot of these sons of Jesse, and it just doesn't quite fit. And then so Samuel goes, I hate to ask an awkward question, but is this everybody? And then Jesse goes, oh, oh well, well, no. I mean, there's, there's the youngest one. I mean, I, I didn't think to have him come all the way down here because obviously it wouldn't be him. What we see is that David is such a, such a man that even his own father didn't think that he was going to be qualified for the kingship. There, there are a couple of different things that are going to be going into this. One, it's clear that, that David is a shepherd, right? He's out watching the flocks. And we are so familiar with this language of God as shepherd. We're so familiar with the story of David as shepherd. We're so familiar with the, the Christmas story in Luke and the shepherds being the first to hear from the angels. We're so used to this that we have forgotten or never have known the low status of shepherds in the ancient world. This, this was not a coveted position. You did not grow up dreaming that one day I might be a shepherd. It was a, it was a demanding job. It was a job that was carried out by, by slaves and criminals and social rejects. It was not a skilled job, but it was a hard job. And so who, who would elevate a shepherd to be king? Who would elevate a shepherd to be, to be king? 
The second thing that is sort of working against David is, is the very way that his father describes him. You know, we, we read here where he says that he's the youngest. But, but the word there that, that is translated as youngest, it, it can mean the youngest, but it also carries a connotation to it. And the connotation is the, the, the smallest, the tiniest, the runt. David's dad here is saying, well, I mean, I got the runt of the litter left. You know, his own father has invited, has failed to invite him to come to the sacrifice, to come to this event, because to Jesse, to David's own father, the idea of David becoming king is so laughable, he does not even bring his son in to participate in the, in the sacrifice. That is how little Jesse thinks of David. And then, then we see the way that the text describes David. And, and we can read this, and it can sound nice to us, right? There in verse, in verse 12. So Jesse sent for him, and he had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. This is not the way in Hebrew that you describe a man. It's the way in Hebrew that you describe a little boy. Or better yet, it's the way that you describe a man so that you're talking down to him as you describe him like a little boy. I mean, what we're seeing here is, is we're seeing him being described as, as boyish and, and weak. He, he's not a, a warrior king, he's a little kid. And so what we're seeing here is, is that outwardly, David is so unimpressive that even his own father overlooks him. His own father here almost forgets about his existence. He is so unimpressive. And yet this is the one that God chooses. It's, it's, this, it's this runt this, this little child, this forgettable, unknown, unimpressive, rough shepherd that God chooses. What we see here is we see a few lessons. We see a few lessons. The first lesson is this. The first lesson is that David is ordinary. David is ordinary. You know, we know so much about David. We know so much of David's story. Next week, we're going to learn all about David and Goliath. We know about David as king. We know about David on the run. We know about David as the psalmist. David, we can forget. We can forget that David is an ordinary person. David's life was not ordinary. David was, but his life was not. And his life was not ordinary, not because of who David was. David's life is extraordinary because of the Spirit of God. I mean, notice here, the, the last thing that we're told is that the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. Everything that comes later, 
whether it's a Goliath or triumphing over Saul or writing psalms or triumphing over the Philistines, no matter what it is, from this day forward, everything that comes in David's life is not because of his own strength, his own ability, his own talent, but because the Spirit of God rests on him. You know, and we can forget this. Like I said, next week we're going to look at, we're going to look at this, the story of Goliath. Why is David there? David's not there because he's part of the army. David's there because Jesse, his daddy, has sent him to carry some sack lunches to his brothers. Yeah, David writes dozens and dozens of psalms, but why? Because he has all this time on his hand when he's sitting in pastures and hiding in caves. Even, even the extraordinary, magnificent scenes from David's life point out how ordinary he is, apart from the Spirit of God. See, David becomes extraordinary. But every extraordinary event in his life happens in spite of his own ordinariness. David has, has access to the power of an extraordinary God because he did not think he was extraordinary. Who am I that you are mindful of me? Now, contrast this with what we've already learned about Saul. David, David is that guy who gets off the bus to walk into the, to the, to the, to the dressing room before a game. His head's down. He's just, he's just there to do his job, there to do business. Saul's the guy who walks down off the bus with the Bluetooth speaker in his hand playing his own intro music because he's bought his own PR. Saul was convinced of his own greatness. He was the greatest king that had ever lived. He was going to have the greatest kingdom. He was going to have he was going to have the biggest kingdom. He was going to have the best army. He was going to be the best king. Cuz he was Saul. And that that self-aggrandizement that self-promotion, that, that, that hunger for his own story, his own name, his own glory, is what leads God's Spirit to tear away from him. What causes Saul's spiral that we will see over the rest of 1 Samuel. You know, most of our society would have us be Saul's instead of David's. Even when they tell you to be like David, right? They're telling you to be like David to crush your, crush your Goliath, right? What they're really telling you to do, they're really telling you to be like Saul. You are special. You are unique. You are awesome. You, you are the best you that has ever been. I mean, I mean look at who we lift up. I've spent my whole life, spent my whole life looking at Deion Sanders. If there has ever been a man in this world who believed his own hype and his own PR, it is the current coach 
of the University of Colorado. That man walks into his own entry music every room he walks into. And what? We've been obsessed with Coach Prime. Well, we were obsessed with Coach Prime until we got obsessed with, with Taylor and, and Kelsey dating. Another person, man, she loves her own press. I know the Swifties are going to come for me. But this is who we lift up. This is, this is who we elect to office. It's people who care more about seeing their names in the paper than doing their job. This is, this is who gets promoted at work, isn't it? The guy who can self-promote. The guy who can tell you how great he is. The guy who's making sure that, that next line on his resume is filled out. See, this is, this is what society would have us be. They would have us be Saul's. But here's the thing. We don't need to encourage people with this idea that God needs them. As if God were somehow shorthanded. No. No, we need to be reminded day in and day out that God is special and we are not. And man, I know that runs counter to everything that we have heard our whole lives. Anything extraordinary that you have is because God gave it to you. Any blessing that you have is because it's a gift from God. Any talent that you have is because God gave it to you. God is special, and we are not. This is the whole point of our faith. Our entire faith consists in making much of him and less of ourselves. David was ordinary. We are ordinary. And accepting this is the first step in being used by God. Because ultimately what the church is, is the church is a collection of nobodies who gather to worship a great big somebody. So David was ordinary. The second point is this. The second lesson is this. Because David was ordinary, God could be extraordinary through David. See, God does not revel in ordinary for its own sake. In David's life and in ours, God is interested in doing something extraordinary. And it only happens when God's Spirit is allowed to work. Look, look through Scripture. Joseph, a foreign criminal in Egypt, becomes the second most powerful man in the world. Why? Because of God. Look at Gideon. Gideon takes 300 men and defeats an army of 100,000 without taking a single casualty. Why? Because God does something extraordinary through an ordinary person. 
That, that same Holy Spirit who was, who was in Joseph, that same Holy Spirit who was in Gideon, that same Holy Spirit who, is, who has come to rest in David here, is that same Spirit that falls upon the church at Pentecost that causes the early church to defy the Roman Empire, to testify boldly about Jesus, even when it costs them their own lives, so that within two or three generations, Christianity had gone from being 12 men dead and alone and scared in a room in Jerusalem to being the force that brings down the Roman Empire. Because of the Holy Spirit. If we, if we cease trying to be like Saul, if we cease trying to be Saul, God can be extraordinary through us. See, God does not share glory. So he takes the ordinary and the plain and the outcast and he pours his power into them. Because only one person in our lives can be seen as great. It's either going to be us or God. And it's hard for us to hear this because we've been fed this steady diet of praise. Third, God made David extraordinary in the pasture. You know, it's interesting. David is anointed, and his daddy sends him right back out to the pasture. There's a long time in David's life in which he is not doing much. And God uses that time to prepare him. God uses that time in the, in the pasture and in the cave and in hiding and on the run to prepare David. It can seem sometimes that we're sitting somewhere and we're doing the same thing, the same monotonous thing on repeat. And, and, and we sit here and we think, God, I know that I know you and I know that I have your spirit. Why are you not doing something extraordinary through me? Because God's preparing you. God's using whatever your pasture is to give you the character and the, 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 the virtues that you need so that he can use you. See, God, God is at work in the ordinary folks doing ordinary things forging their character and their patience and their integrity. Because this is, this is how God molds our hearts to look how he wants. Finally is this. Jesus, Jesus is the one who is the truly ordinary, extraordinary one. You know, we, we need constant reminders that David's story is not about us. There's a very, very famous clip. There's a very famous clip of a preacher from Texas, Matt Chandler, um, preaching somewhere, and, and, and he's preaching actually on David and Goliath and how it's often preached. And Matt sort of being Matt does the Matt thing and yells at everybody. He goes, you are not David. We do that, right? We look at the story, and we want to identify with David, and, 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 and we, want to, we, want to, we want to turn David into this like motivational talk for our lives, right? But this story isn't about us. 
The story's not actually even about David. The story is about God and what God is doing. The story of David is meant to point to someone greater even than David. The story of David points us to Jesus. David's anointed by the, by the Holy Spirit only to spend the next 15 years in obscurity. David was a, a nobody. Who is Jesus? In the, eyes, in the eyes of the world, who is Jesus? Jesus was a nobody. He was a guy with a blue-collar job who was born in a stable, who lived in Nazareth, and can anything good come out of Nazareth? We don't, we don't even know. The Scripture doesn't even give us anything about Jesus' childhood, except that one story in Luke about when he's 12. And then Jesus goes, and he's, he's baptized, and the Holy Spirit comes, And even then, instead of marching on Jerusalem, what is Jesus's, the first thing he does after his baptism? He goes and he spends 40 days in the wilderness, fasting and praying. Jesus's time on earth was spent in obscurity. We know it because we know who he is. But you, there were much more prominent people at the time of Jesus than Jesus. But what happens, what we see, what we see in David's anointing, what we, what we see in Jesus, is, is that the victory has already been won. See, see, see David's anointing is not this anecdote to, to telling us to hang on until God puts us on the throne of victory. David's anointing isn't the story about how, how wonderful you know, this ordinary person is and God will take you, an ordinary person, and he'll lift you up and he'll make you great. The story of David ultimately is to remind us that God was at work when he anoints David in his plan to put Jesus on his throne as the permanent, ultimate king of Israel that will have the final victory. that will slay every enemy of God that comes. The most ordinary king of all was not a shepherd from Bethlehem, but a, but a carpenter from Galilee, born in Bethlehem, who because of God is raised to the most extraordinary position of all. So, so the, the, as we read David, let's not try and be like David. I mean, let's try and be more like David than like Saul. But let's understand that what David is pointing us to is Jesus. What Jesus does for us. What Jesus has done for me. What he's done for you, what he can do for you. Our hymn of invitation this morning is hymn number 305. I have decided